we'll just wait for a few people who've popped out. So we're coming to the end of our time together. And a sense of reorienting to the prospect of going back home or wherever you're heading after this. I'm sure you can feel the kind of energy shift in, in the body and the heart-mind as you, you do that. And um, we, we can't, of course, take the retreat conditions or the sense of calm that we may have cultivated. Well, we can take it for a bit, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what can we take? Well, we can take... Uh, understandings, insights, and we can take intentions. There's a Tibetan saying that everything rests on the tip of intention. And as you reflect over the last week, you may have a sense of the truth of that. (laughs) Uh, And uh, this is... uh, place that supports a, a clarifying and a, a steadying of a sense of, of intention. Um, and, and in practice in daily life, it's, it's easy to kind of sit a bit in a soup of intentions, you know, where there's kind of lots of intentions around and you kind of try a bit of this and then that doesn't kind of work, so try a bit of that, you know. And it, it it's helpful just in this time of transition to kind of clarify some basic intentionality for our practice in daily life if, if you aspire to continue your practice into daily life. Um, and you know, to reflect also a bit on the unconscious intentions that we may be bringing to that. Yuka spoke so clearly and powerfully last evening about the the, the significance of how we imagine self, world, experience. And I wonder how you are consciously or unconsciously imagining practice back in daily life. Do you consciously or unconsciously think of it more as meditation practice or as Dharma practice? As being kind of primarily about stress reduction, kind of self-regulation, or about awakening as being kind of primarily about practice or about path. 
And it's not that one of these is right and the other, you know, it's not to kind of prescribe at all what, uh, how you should conceive of and imagine practice, but just to be conscious of how influential that imagining and intentionality will be on what unfolds, (laughs) you know, in our practice. Everything kind of rests on it. Consciously or unconsciously. And whatever we feed, whatever intentions and insights we feed, grow. You know, that, that's also something that may have been very evident over the last few days. You know, it's a basic Dharma principle. Whatever we feed grows. Whatever we don't feed doesn't grow. You know? And so... A really important reflection, if, if we want to live by a sense of intentionality for practice, is how am I going to feed it back in daily life? How am I going to support it? How am I going to nurture and kind of encourage uh, intention and understanding? You know, it's, it's, it's understanding and insight that free. You know, and some of you have really kind of spoken movingly, powerfully about kind of insights and understandings this week. Generally seeing something once is, is not enough. You know, it's almost as if insights kind of land us on a fence and we kind of wob- wobble around a bit. And it's very easy for the kind of gravitational pull of our old habits and our environments and the way that other people are kind of imagining us and constructing us and drawing us into those kind of relational patterns again to kind of tip back into the old ways of being. Do do you kind of sense that? Isn't it? It's kind of humbling. You know, you kind of think, well... I'm changed forever by this insight I've had on this retreat and get home and, you know, there's a pile of washing waiting for you to, you know, that's been piling up over the last week or there's a kind of overflowing inbox and it's just so easy to just kind of be pulled back. However, you know, this kind of on-the-fence thing, with a bit of feeding, with a bit of encouragement, a kind of bit of nudging, there is the very real possibility of kind of moving into new ways, creating new pathways, new ways of imagining, new ways of being. If we have this sense of feeding and practicing intentions and understandings, this sense that insights or understandings not just as fruit, but as path, right? So I'm deliberately practicing those ways of looking. You know, it may have been something about forgiveness, about compassion, about appreciative joy, about reactivity, equanimity, you know, metta, you know, all the different themes we've explored. And, and, and just that sense of, okay, I'm going to make this a practice. I'm going to put on those spectacles for this day, this week, this month. And sometimes, midst the kind of soup, soup tendency, it's really helpful to have a sense of, okay, I've got a theme that I'm really going to cultivate in quite a, 
a, a clear and intentional way over a period of time. So that it becomes a lens. You know, you could take the theme of uh, reactivity or, or, you know, mindfulness of mental states or right speech, you know. And make it the lens through which your practice kind of metabolizes your life. Does that make sense? So, so it becomes the theme that on and off the cushion, I'm saying, okay, that this time is really dedicated to that theme and I'm going to Dharma Seed and I'm listening to talks on that theme or doing guided meditations on that theme and maybe discussing it with a kind of Dharma buddies, friends, mentors, you know, so that it supports this sense of intentionality through the, the, you know, the countless pulls on our attention and intention that we experience in daily life. So, you know, this may be a really kind of important day to reflect on what are the insights and understandings that you've touched or kind of opened to over the last week that feel too precious to forget or too precious to lose. And how could they support a sense of intentionality? And how can you feed that intentionality and that understanding uh, as you kind of move back into daily life? And, you know, the kind of curiosity that we've spoken about, the interest in this, it feels like that that's part of what we need to feed. It, to keep intentionality and understanding alive kind of needs a sense of discovery, need to feed that sacred flame of inquiry into this extraordinary experience of being a human being, this kind of mysterious, profound, difficult, but, but also kind of beautiful experience of being a human being. Uh, seeking to live a conscious life, an intentional life, a life that is uh, oriented to understanding and compassion and service. Uh, I've been really touched by the, the sense of um, concern for the world or the worlds that has been around in the field this week, you know. Uh, and that sense of how can this practice, this time on retreat, this practice that I'm seeking to really cultivate in my life, how can that be of service? You know, so that it's not just about moi, you know, but, but is somehow an offering. You know. That gesture that many of us have been doing this week at the end of a sitting, just kind of putting the hands together and just bowing. You know, I, I really appreciate jo- Joseph Goldstein recommends or encourages that sense of at the end of a sitting, you know, just that being a gesture of offering where we say, okay, I dedicate whatever kind of 
benefit or blessing or sense of intentionality that has been cultivated in this time, I dedicate that to those who are suffering in this moment or these particular friends or family members or ecosystems or communities or principles. And, you know, you can have been sitting in the mind all over the place and just feeling, well, I haven't got much to offer at the end of that, you know. (laughs) But actually there's something about, (laughs) you know... (laughs) Yeah, spare the, kind of spare them the, the distractedness and the, <laughs> the papancha, you know. <laughs> but there's something about just the gesture of offering and connecting our practice with, with wanting to live a life that is of benefit, wanting to live a life that actually contributes to the whole, that is in some way dedicated to the healing of our worlds. And, and it may be that, you know, that, that gesture, I know for the next few days when I, I do that, I'll be really holding you guys in my heart with that and feeling, you know, that sense of us dedicating all that's been cultivated over these days uh, as an offering into our worlds. You know, you know something, your, your faces are shining. <laughs> your faces are shining and it's... It's beautiful to see. It's been a real privilege to be with you this this week. Some of the IMS staff have commented and said, wow, a really committed group, really steady group. The kind of energy in the field has been very, uh, very lovely, very uh, dedicated, very good-hearted. And uh, really, really wish you well. Thank you for your companionship and practice and presence. And really wish you well as you journey on from here. We'll begin with where Chris ended, also from my side. So much appreciation just for everything that you have brought in to this week, for your practice, for your commitment to this practice, because I really feel it matters what we do. It matters what we do in all these hours, just sitting in stillness, It's such a powerful um, reminder, you know, for this society that there is this possibility of coming back to ourselves, of grounding ourselves, coming uh, coming back to sanity. Just 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 the fact that people are there who are willing to give time and energy and money to, to do this practice. It's it's in itself already uh, quite a radical message, I think, that we are s- sending out in doing this. Um, and it's something that we also 
need to keep alive, as Chris has said, in our daily life. It's something that needs to be nurtured, otherwise we are just flooded by all the events and the activities and responsibilities in our daily life. It takes a lot of commitment if we go out and, you know, have our roles and responsibilities to somehow keep the connection with something that we may have touched here, to keep the connection with the understanding, with the spaciousness. And so I think it's really an art of how to somehow bring this into our whole life so that our Dharma practice is not separated uh, from our normal life in the world, but that more and more we have this image, you could say, of our whole life being Dharma practice, how we relate to ourselves, to our body, to other people, how we work, how we consume, you know, just all the ways how we are in the world, that they are are all part of Dharma practice. And I often think of it as a creative act of um, shaping the mandala of our life. And I think it's really an art and it takes time. It's not something that we can just make from one day to the other, but it's something that starts to grow if we again and again can reconnect to that which is meaningful and deep and important to us, that we start to make choices, that we set our priorities maybe a little bit differently, that we really make a commitment every day to sit in stillness, just to make space to make time in our full days. And it means sometimes that we have to renounce something, you know, that we have to make a choice that we are not going to watch this movie, for instance, you know, and rather just take the time on our cushion. It's a choice. It's something that we have to commit to. But um, it's so important that we create this space in the midst of all the pressure of our life, that we find ways of simplifying our lives and maybe seeing, is it all needed what I'm doing? Could I bring in more simplicity, more renunciation to my lifestyle? And sometimes it's also naturally that things fall away, that we realize, oh, I don't need to see this movie anymore. It's, it's not so... You know, it doesn't draw me so much anymore. I, actually, I I've really see this in my mind. The mind simply loses interest in many things because it has a more clear inclination in a certain direction. And the more we have a clear intention, I mean, really just echoing what Chris has says, said, the easier it gets in a way because we have a very clear compass and... We don't have to ask ourselves for a long time, should I do it or not? We have a much clearer sense of what is important and what not. And so we may realize that really having enough space in our lives, and it could be even, you know, short moments is so important. To quote Etty Hillism once again, sometimes the most important thing in a whole day is the rest we take between two deep breaths or the turning inwards in prayer for five short minutes. You know, even if we live busy lives, just to remember to bring space 
in between, not to just run, 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 but the ability to stop and to listen and to connect. So if you come home from work, rather than rushing into the next activity, take a moment to just, you know, give yourself a break. You, you don't need, need to call it meditation, just give yourself a break. Just sitting there for five minutes or lying on the sofa, just learning how to relax from time to time, to come back to yourself and not just run. So that's one thing that I really would like to encourage you. A very simple way of nurturing us and coming back to ourselves. And the second thing, it also has to do with what Chris said about the intentions. Um, many years ago, Joseph Goldstein once said that whenever he sees an intention in him arising to be generous, he has made it a practice to just follow this impulse. And this has really stayed with me. It's such a good guideline. I mean, of course, we still need uh, discerning wisdom, but, um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, to take it seriously when wholesome intentions arise, to notice, oh, that's something that I could give to this person. And then rather than, you know, just putting away and denying it, taking it serious. Oh, that's a good intention. Let's follow through with it because that's how we nurture. So that's something that we can practice in everyday life. We don't need deep samadhi. But just noticing wholesome intentions arising. Oh, I could give this person a phone call. Um, I could write a letter. I could, whatever, you know, just if a good intention arises, follow it. Yeah, just do it. And that really strengthens it. And then, of course, many of you know, just nurturing these intentions and the aspiration by also engaging with all the teachings that are around. We live in an exceptional time today. You know, these are difficult times, and at the same time, we are so privileged. We have so much dharma at our fingertips. We can just go to the internet. There are so many resources. I think they put out um, a sheet. Did they put out something with the links? There are so many offerings. Maybe occasionally we'll talk about Bodhi College. There is access to insight. There is Sutta Central. There are so many books. There is Dharma Seed where you can go and listen to dharma talks. Um, just make use of all that is available. It's really, really important. Yeah. And, you know, if we have this image of this being a path, it also means, yes, we are patient with ourselves. We know it's not some, you know, uh, overnight thing. We, we, we need to have a broader vi vision just to keep going and knowing Development takes time. We cannot force it. We just keep walking and we trust that if we plant and water the seeds, they will grow. It's, it's just a matter of, you know, the causes and conditions, how they work. They will bring fruit if we just keep doing it. So I wish you all the best and just safe journeys to wherever 
you go back to, to whatever circumstances you go back. May you be well. And may all beings be well. A uh, fellow practitioner of mine who I hold dear, although I don't see much of him, he's in a Tibetan practice, was telling me how his uh, witty Tibetan teacher was making fun of his Western disciples, uh, saying he had, due to the progressed nature of Western disciples and their uh, uncanny gift for wisdom teachings, he had a Especially powerful mantra for them and um, <laughs> Western disciples pricked their ears. Kind of, you know. <laughs> Finally, you know, recognition for our adva <laughs> advanced stage in Genesis. And the mantra runs as follows Please, please, sorry, sorry, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I find that very insightful, isn't it? Because it's, we, you know, we're touched and we find in ourselves doors that spring open. We find, we connect dots, we have insights, we feel that this heart really is capable of growth. It is capable of waking up, it is capable of being different than we always thought it it, it, we, we were cursed to be. And then we find out that the insights, we, we kind of, we can visit, but we can't move in. Yeah. We're, it seems to take an awful lot of something else than just sparks flying and having episodical insights into the dynamics of uh, our experience. So that we can live from a place of wisdom, it takes more than these insights. It, uh, to stay with Chris's image, I think we have to get up on that fence, that's clear. Yeah? So that's methods that do it, that's techniques that do it, that's conditions that do it, that's specific occasions, efforts that does it. All this can somehow get us up onto that fence. But then <laughs> it seems this is actually not a fence, but this... <laughs> This is a, a plateau that needs to be crossed. Yeah. Yeah. What looked like a fence <laughs> that we can just, you know, heroically fly up, up to with a glorious, uh, you know, ignited insight or so um, in a halo, uh, you know, it turns out to be sort of more like a, a possibly longish and possibly apocalyptic march through uh, through a plateau, you know, a crater or something. So we need to sustain, we need to sustain ourselves. We need to learn to nourish, yeah? We need to come from heroic, willful, episodic effort to a kind of sustained, resourced, nourished, uh, willingness to live by what we know to be true. So one way I think that helps me is to say, what, you know, how do I need to live to do justice 
to what I have already understood. Yeah? And I kind of keep having to ask this question because obviously there are habits. Um, you know, like you, I, I have stories. And not all of these stories are good stories. So one, one thing is to find a good story. You know, our mind is telling stories and we can't stop it from telling stories. You know. At the lower end of the story, you have what Buddhists call papancha, conceptual proliferation, you know, highly driven by desire, highly driven by self-view, generally catastrophizing, usually you know, rummaging in nightmare scenarios and then going into a sort of explosive fanning out of associative probability buildings you know, how likely one of these scenarios is going to happen to me. At the other end of the spectrum of story building, we have that which comes from uh, inquiry, that which comes from investigation, you know, the probing into and the the sensitivity to to being touched by a story in which we are empowered. So for me, for me, that has become a hallmark of a good story. A good story is a story in which I am empowered to learn, to change something, to take responsibility. So bad stories are stories where I am cursed, where this is a, this is a sad world uh, created by a bad-tempered God on a Monday morning, you know, who... <laughs> Who now has you know is laughing his head off by seeing me try, trying to make sense of it all? Yeah, that's a bad story. So let's not feed bad stories. Very much in line with what you beautifully outlined last night. However bad things look, we cannot we cannot free ourselves from the responsibility that we are part of what makes that world bad or good. Yeah. If we think this is bad weather we're living in, uh, we can choose to either reaffirm the badness of that weather by uh, rationalizing our feeling bad, by rationalizing our own limitations, by blaming and identifying culprits, or we can say, look, maybe this world is not as, as I would like to design it, but I can actually have a say by making a perceptual world, by making an emotional world, by creating a response that is, even if what I meet is not pretty, I can respond as wholesome as possible to what is not pretty. And thereby, that world begins to change. It begins to change psychologically. It begins to change uh, interpersonally. And, you know, this is the nucleus for civilization. Yeah. It begins from inside out. So if I start to take responsibility for making the best possible story of something, then I will begin to brighten up this world. And however much you can point to objective forces, you know, there are some really objective, unfortunate things happening in our world. Um, if we can take responsibility to start brightening this world up inside out, we make this world a better place, I have no doubt. Change comes from committed, courageous people who trust themselves, you know, who trust their own intentions to start with. If I cannot trust my intention, you know, I will be suspicious of everybody else's intentions. Yeah? 
I will not see good people. I will just pretend, see pretentious people who try to look good so that they get more of my money, more of my attention, more of my admiration. If I be able, if I learn to find trust in my own choose, trust in my own intentions, because I make a commitment to uh, discern these intentions and affirm the ones I deem to be wholesome and not affirm and not condone and not consent to the ones I deem not to be leading to happiness, my own and other people's, and both of ours, uh, then uh, you know things will become difficult. If I have made such a discernment and if I have made such a commitment it'll be more easy not just to trust my own but also the ones that I meet in others yeah. one of my teachers was a, a Vietnam vet and you know for me Vietnam was basically something you read in history books but he has actually been there and we you know, lived a few years together and I remember doing walking meditation in a place in Northumberland uh, in front of a crypt. You know, we lived in a place where there was a crypt and the crypt was a dark crypt with a grave inside. And there was a wonderful spot there where we did walking meditation on our all-night sits. And I asked him why he doesn't go down there and he said basically he was afraid. And I said, what are you afraid of? And um, he said, well, I don't like to walk in front of a black hole. Yeah, doing walking meditation and I naively thought well why there's nothing in there you've seen that many times at daylight it's a crypt and he said well you know I've spent quite some time terrorizing people <laughs> and that's what's happening to you he told me quite bluntly that's what's happening to you when you terrorize people you find black holes difficult to bear when you walk up and, up and down in front of them. And it was clear to me that this man felt the repercussions of some of the circumstances he, have, he had thrown, he'd been thrown into and that made him do things that he regretted and that made him do things to people that he himself would fear having been done to. And that was an echo. And me, without much virtue or without much insight you know into all this i was just blindly unaware of all this because for me this was just a black hole with a grave inside and i never thought much about uh coming out of there actually you know. but for him it was different and i kind of touched into the reality that we have we begin to create worlds that replicate what we do to others yeah we begin to suspect if we are careless if we are heartless if we are callous if we are um, dishonest then uh, if we're ill-tempered if we lash out then this is what we expect the world to do with us isn't it so learning to affirm one's own goodness learning to affirm one's own strength and beginning to trust in this in the Buddhist day, people seem to have lack of faith when they didn't believe a teacher or a teaching or the efficacy of a particular method. I don't actually think that's the major problem. Most people I meet, they lack confidence in themselves. They think, well, this is well true, but unfortunately, it doesn't work for me. I, you know, yet undiagnosed. <laughs> Congenital condition that makes me... 
Buddhism is wasted on me, nice as it sounds. You know? <laughs> and we kind of need to reestablish the trust that we have some goodness, that we have some discernment, that we have some intelligence, that we have a heart. Yeah. That's where the please, please, sorry, sorry, thank you, thank you, peace comes in. Yeah. And learning to find a good story and affirming good stories in our lives. Stories where we can change something, where we have the power to understand, to affect, to create, to, to bring into alignment with what we discern to be promising. Not just gratifying, but promising for clarity, for happiness, for uh, maturity. You know, there's something to be said about the old enlightenment ideal, not the Buddhist enlightenment ideal, but the sort of humanist enlightenment ideal that human beings can learn, you know, that grow up, that maturity will meet challenges and grow more mature through meeting, encountering, being humbled by, uh, and moving on kind of challenges. Yeah. So one of the things that obviously helps me is sitting, commitment to contemplative practice. Um, you know, we can connect so in so many ways today. This is a blessing. I personally benefit from living in a digitized world. I couldn't live a life that I live without having access to virtual worlds. And yet we can connect in so really unhelpful ways, with, uh, particularly with digital media. You know? uh, there's the connection of the sharing of wisdom and there is the connection of the pooling of ignorance. Yeah, both, both are possible and both have um, you know, the speed at which we can connect and we can replicate. And, um, has, has increased. And not all connection is, is the sharing of wisdom. Yeah. So uh, do think of the necessary dietary circumspection in, in how you engage with forms of connection and make sure that you find what actually nourishes and not just uh, feeds your catastrophizing pattern. You see, we're mammals and as mammals, we have a few patterns and not all of them are actually updated. So the updates for S sapiens sapiens seems to come with an incredible lack, yeah? So, so, you know, basically, when it comes, you know, some of our hedonic hotspots are still kicking in when we basically, you know, find things that are sweet and full of starch and full of fat, yeah? That makes sense if you're a kind of single Neolithic <laughs> woman who finds, you know, uh, honeycomb or who finds, you know, a tree full of figs and, and, you know, basically before anything else finds them or, you eat them, yeah, or you bring them home for your young. That makes perfect sense. But it doesn't make sense that in an age where we can find fig trees any moment, you know, when you can order lots of them, uh, when we basically, the very same pattern and our hedonic hotspots that kicks in and all the, you know, opioid happiness that kicks in in our heads, um, the same pattern, you know, creates obesity, dependency, comfort eating, and makes us numb. So we're waiting for the update on that one. We have some other updates we're, we're eagerly awaiting. You know, one of the 
great patterns about humans is adaptability. Yeah, that's the people tell us that this is what got our neocortex is going. Yeah, adaptability. Things were so shaky at the time that basically living with a chimpanzee brain didn't do the job anymore. Although it has worked for quite a long time for our for our uh, hominid ancestors, now suddenly greater complexity was 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 happening, and we needed to adapt. So we began to adapt. Like all mammals, we begin to adapt. In fact, we have patterns that discern, that are keen to find patterns within things we don't know. We, we can't yet make sense of. So there's something in our brains that keeps going back to trying to discern the pattern. Because pattern detection is crucial for adaptability. Yeah. So there's something in us that begins when we are faced with a pattern that we don't understand. We try to detect it. Yeah? And that makes perfect sense uh, for hunting patterns. Yeah, Say if, if orcas are finding out when the sea lion pups get born so that they can pull them off the beach, and they, they who don't like shallow water actually allow themselves to be beached deliberately to pull them off the beach, then they have discerned a pattern that is useful for their feeding. But if we actually engage our brains to detect patterns in algorithms that are consciously construed to create arbitrary, fictional patterns, then we get hooked in. We get addicted. You know, Our brain cannot help itself awaiting the update to cope with algorithms that are intentionally devised to hook our brain in. We get addicted. Yeah? And we don't notice. It doesn't come with a big sign around its neck saying, this is addiction. We just feel an urge. Remember, Yuka made a point yesterday between urge and urgency. These are two different things. They sound similar, but urgency is something that comes to us in understanding the preciousness and the fragility of our resources, our life, our connection, our, our, our biosphere. Yeah. Urges come up with a very similar feeling that say basically fulfill. Yeah, I am an I am not an urge. I am a need. All my urges come as needs. You know, there's a bit of difference that needs to be found between the need part and the greed part. Yeah, but they can feel very similar when they come up. You know, it feels I need to get information. It feels I need to make sure that this is not something I miss. It needs, you know. So we need to learn not just to get a better story. We need to create a space in which we can discern urges from urgency, in which we can discern need from greed. And that space is the contemplative space. That's the beginning of the meditative practice. And for that, we need to create a kind of alchemy, alchemistic vessel, you know, something that has walls that are strong enough, walls that make ethical commitments, and that are powerful enough to contain these urges that come up, so that we can feel the urge, hold the urge long enough, get at the energy of the urge, and let the urge peter out and transforming this energy, or sublimating this energy, or refining this energy. So meditation is that vessel. And that vessel is only as good as we have created safe walls. Only when these walls are safe. That's the samadhi 
that's the ethical commitment, that's the time commitment. Yeah. Do we create the space in which we can hold the stuff that usually holds us? Yeah. We're kind of voluntarily holding the things that usually grab us by the neck and shake us around and push us in this corner and pull us away from that corner. So we're willing to hold that in the space of a contemplative heart. Yeah, so the alchemistic or alchemic vessel that is strong enough to allow us to feel all these things. Yeah. And then, you know, there's something in us that is curious, and not just that, it is knowing, is actually we want to wake up, we want to grow. It's very difficult to keep us stupid. Yeah. And if we create that space, that growth, that maturation takes place, you know because we want to be happy and because we begin to feel more clearly what is helpful in this and what is not, you know, it will become easier to make the choices Chris spoke of. It will become easier to, you know, to commit in the way Yoka has mentioned. So, a better story, commitment to contemplative practice. I like Yoka. Yes, do meditate, and yes, if you have time, spend half of your time in samatha exercises. That would be my blunt recommendation. You know, if you have three quarters of an hour, spend half of it doing samatha, and the other half, look at what stops you from having more samatha. Okay? <laughs> yes, definitely do that. But sometimes it's necessary to just break the pattern. Yeah. So maybe you don't have time for half an hour of samatha, but maybe you have time to just stand there or, or, or lean against the wall and don't even meditate. Just let your tongue hang out, you know, and, <laughs> and try not to be defined by urges. Just find out what it feels like to be perfectly useless and let your tongue hang out. And, you know, not be defined by something you need to tick off, something you need to achieve, something you need to quell or get rid of. Just kind of be there a mammal with a tongue hanging out, and no purpose, you know. The ascetic practice of purposelessness is great for people with full diaries. You know? And then, the heart, you know. Let us, let us acknowledge that we, are, that we are learning to be humans by others, and we need to somehow find the space to connect with others. You know, the, the, the root, the revolutionary cell in Buddhism, you know, the conspirative cell begins with Kalyanamitata, with noble friendship. This is basically the noble friend. This is somebody who shares your aspirations and you connect with in a maybe even impersonal way. You may not even like the guy, but you realize suddenly you recognize yourself in him or in her. Yeah? And cultivate that kind of relationship you're very likely to begin to like these people. I've begun to actually become friends with some of the worst guys who I told you about, I met in the monastery. You know, some, Many of them came, many of them went, and some of the worst of them stayed, and you know, some of the worst became my friends. <laughs> yeah. And still are my friends, some of them. So uh, you will become different in that practice, they will become different in that practice, and there is something in you that will become able to bow to them. And you, you, you look at each other and you say, wow, I didn't know how you got into this number. It can't be easy. Yeah. Yeah. But I recognize you in there. Yeah. I recognize you in there. So 
do that and be, make also a commitment to translate what you know from Buddhist teachings, what you know from your own practice, what you have learned and picked up, what inspires you. Make a commitment to translate that into your lives, into your families, into your non-Buddhist friendships, into your non-meditating work colleagues. Take that in there. Make a commitment to ask yourself, let, let us translate this. You know, Buddhism is famous, you may know or not know this, but Buddhism is famous for having started some of the most formidable translation work in literal, textual translation work in, in, in the history of humanity. Because there was a very strong and powerful uh, message that it is the content and not the word that counts. Yeah? Contrary to, say, Vedic teaching, which has enshrined not just the actual word, but the very language to be the language of God, of the gods. Yeah? Buddhists have always had a very pragmatic attitude to, to the message and the language. It was the content that mattered. And the Buddha very early on encouraged people to do that in their own languages, <laughs> their own dialects. So the the translation in a bigger sense, the cultural translation of this message has yet to take place in a big way. We don't need little Tibetan, Korean, Thai, Japanese or, or, or Cambodian pockets. We're grateful for those, but those will need to, uh, you know, there are more. Yeah, there. We, we need to translate these messages what we find there and what we are inspired with when we go to Asia, to Taiwan or to China or, to, or to, to Vietnam, what we find there, inspiring as it is, this is the translation into these countries. Yeah. This is the translation of Indian Buddhism into these respective countries. It's not actually Indian Buddhism. Yeah. What inspires us when we go east is not Indian Buddhism. It's the translation of Indian Buddhism into Tibet, into Vietnam, into Thailand, into Korea. <laughs> and we need to do some of this work, not by copying this work or by trying to import it and keep it pristine, you know, pristine Korean or Thai or Vietnamese, but actually by bringing this here. This will something. This will take a little more time. I probably won't see the results of this, but it's an effort we all can and have to do when we're going home with this. So make a commitment to take whatever you pick up here, whatever seems useful, and translate it in your life to the people that matter, to where you are. Every being that aspires to deepen and understand her consciousness is going to heighten the consciousness in the space he or she lives. Yeah. So take heart. Some of this will fall into place. Some of this will remain a mystery. Some of this will be immediately noticeable. Some of this you will have to come and get more. Yeah? So don't hesitate to, to be unfinished. As we both liked Yuka's unfinished talk yesterday, uh, I like the concept of to be living is to be unfinished. Yeah? There's something very compassionate in that dictum. So I would like to sit with you for a few minutes and do a little dedication and wish you, wish you well. I was very heartened by your sharings, very touched by the care you have extended to each other in these groups particularly. And I'd like to thank my co-teachers. Yeah. It was, it's been a great course.
So let's close our eyes and center our attention in the chest, establish our posture, allow the feeling of being carried, of being responsible not for the holding but simply of the aligning of this body and surrendering its weight, surrendering our bulk to the ground beneath us. And the ma allow the mind to become wide and expansive and reach out to our neighbors, front and back, left and right. And just relish for a moment in this. the warmth, the connectedness, the sense of being able to entrust one's body to whatever carries you right now. And then let's call up to mind to people who make it possible that we are here, who may be holding the fort, looking after the kids, have stood in for my, on my workplace for me, people who have inspired me or egged me on to do this. Think of people for whom you would like to be a better person. The person that you know is waiting in your heart to come out of its eggshell. Think of the people who inspire you. Think of people who are in need and let them share into the goodness that comes from your efforts, from your concerted willingness to be with things that are not easy. From your efforts to cultivate what you may only have an inkling of and not yet full trust that it is there. From your courage to meet what is difficult, let them partake in your choice. Maybe the release, maybe the bliss, maybe just the confidence that this mind is capable of opening its petals. This heart is bigger than its conditioning. So be generous and invite those people in who matter. Those people who, whom you're particularly grateful and indebted to.
And let us promise that we'll try to be good cooks for our own chitta, for our own mind. That we'll be looking and fostering its growth. And that will practice the big mantra. Please, please, sorry, sorry, thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.